I'm Dave Cornoyer. I'm Ryan Hastman. And I'm Kate Kerber. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on September 23rd, 2018. In this episode, we're going to talk about the state of Alberta politics, including how Rachel Notley's government is doing going into the final six months ahead of next year's provincial election, and what the NDP might need to do to win in 2019. We're also going to delve into some political and nomination news. But first, we're excited to welcome a guest to our podcast today. Welcome, Kate. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming, Kate. We're so happy to have you join us. Um, Kate and I have been friends for a couple decades now, I think at least, since at least the 90s, back when I was cool. And um, her husband is a guy, a friend that I grew up with. So I've been working on her for a while. And Kate happens to also listen to the podcast, which is nice. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you, Kate? What do you uh, What do you do? How do you know me? What do you want to get off your chest? All right. Um, well, uh, first off, I work in the Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta with a fantastic research team. We have a number of activities ongoing, and I'm the team lead of a project called the Care Project, I'm working with community organizations in the city and looking at how to improve access to healthcare for vulnerable Edmontonians. Previously, I worked internationally based in South Africa for 10 years, um, helping to build the evidence base for maternal and child health. Um, I come from a fairly conservative family and conservative upbringing. Um, my grandpa served as MP for Edmonton East for over 20 years. I forgot to wow. tell Dave that. Yeah. So what was his name? And it was um, during the Mulroney era, right? Yeah, his name uh, is Bill Scareco, and he actually uh, beat Preston Manning at one point. Oh, wow. Good for yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> Dave probably can tell us about his career. Uh, <laughs> Put him on the spot. Dave has his encyclopedia knowledge of ridings and elections built into his brain. mostly provincial mostly oh, provincial yeah. but i can i i know i know i do know a bit probably more about federal than the average person but mostly provincial so if he'd been like a social credit mla i could have told you, you all about everything yeah. Yeah. yeah well yeah my family is is conservative my parents are, are still involved um in a lot of uh, conservative activities and uh even i went to trinity western university for a, a slice and Ooh. um yeah i definitely have um, some credentials there, but I've never been a really good partisan, and uh, I'd say I'm a bit of a political nomad at this point. Um, I voted across the spectrum, sometimes strategically, although now fairly firmly on the left, but I did uh, vote for Ryan overseas. <laughs> they mailed it in. We mailed, mailed it in from in. Cape Town, right? Yeah, wow. we did. Yeah. I appreciate it. And I had told you at the time, if I had won or lost by two, we would have known who did it. It would have been now, us. Now, now, were these the kind of votes that were like, counted like after the election like in the states you know how they have like the election and then like a week later if they need to they count the overseas votes or we don't need to tell the expats that okay yeah. sorry guys every vote counts yeah every vote counts please count even if it's even if you're mailing it in and your stepdad was on the founding ucp board he was he yeah has a lot to say about governance and how things are run and how um yeah the policies that they put in place was hopefully going to set that party up for keeping out some of the more fringe elements, but we'll see. Maybe we should have brought Al, actually. I'm sure Al would love to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> We're deep in nomination season right now with, uh, it seems to be five, six, seven, eight, or nine nomination meetings happening each week for uh, for the UCP, the NDP, and the Alberta party. Um, so there's been, since our last, uh, our last podcast, we've had 
probably quite a few quite a few nominations. Most recently, in the past couple of days, we've had the UCP uh, nominated Karen Principe in uh, in Edmonton decor. She defeated Janice Sarich, who was the former two term MLA PC yeah. MLA for that area. That's kind of that was a bit noticeable. of a surprise. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, uh, Principe had been a, a city council candidate in uh, Ward Three in the last municipal election here in Edmonton, and she came very close. It was a very really close three way race in that ward. Uh, which saw Dave Loken, the incumbent, defeated, and John Zadek win, and I think it was like a pretty close, like probably ten ten point spread between the top between the three main candidates. So she had a lot of name recognition going into this UCP nomination contest. Um, Edmonton Gold Bar, Marlon Schmidt, the NDP MLA, has been renominated. Um, he's currently the Minister of Advanced Ed. Lacombe Pinoca, Ron Orr, former Wildrose MLA incumbent UCPer, has been renominated. He defeated a. Uh, city councillor from Lacombe by the name of Thalia Hibbs. Um, and people might remember Ron Orr as the uh, the MLA who warned that uh, the legalization of cannabis was going to lead to a communist revolution. So legalization is happening on October 17th. So hold your horses, people. We'll, uh, or hold your horses or hold on to your... Uh, <laughs> your cap. Hold on to your caps because uh, we'll see if that communist revolution is coming. Well, it's already here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, September 22nd, that was yesterday, uh, I, uh, the UCP had two nomination contests in Calgary. In Calgary-Glenmore, which there'd been quite a bit of news around some of the candidates in Calgary-Glenmore, uh, Whitney Isaac won uh, the UCP nomination. Now, she's a longtime uh, conservative partisan on the progressive conservative side and probably uniquely in Calgary on the federal progressive conservative side. She was Joe Clark, I think she was Joe Clark's constituency president when he came back to like be in the... 2000. Yeah, in 2000. Yeah, so she's been a lot, from what I understand, been around the, the kind of conservative circles on the federal PC side for some time. And interestingly, she was Jim Prentice's campaign manager when he brief, during his brief run for the federal PCs in Calgary Southwest before Stephen Harper announced he was going to run as the new Canadian Alliance leader. So that's like going back. Like, like 02. 02, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was funny because like I totally forgotten that Jim Prentice was yeah. was going to run in that in that riding and then backed out when as a kind of a courtesy when Harper ran because well, the old PCs believed in those things. <laughs> the other part of the drama back then was Ezra Levant was nominated. Yeah, and so they had oh, to convince yeah. him to step aside. They had aside to push him out leader. basically, and he'd taken over the board. And there was all sorts of nasty. Spending money was there on lawsuits billboards. or something involved? I think yeah. like it was quite nasty. Yeah, that's right. That was uh, that was a, a bit while ago. So I'm sure half of our audience wasn't alive. Totally, you know, but that's okay. Um, so the other controversy in, in Calgary, Glenmore, and I just want to talk about this because it was so weird and, and s- so strange, is Phil Schumann, one of the candidates for the UCP, was days before the nomination vote, it was reported and revealed that he had sent a direct message to an Instagram account that posted conservative memes, but like also like Nazi memes, uh, like a locked account. Yeah, a locked Instagram been, like a account. Private account. But yeah. but one that had quite a few followers, from what I understand. Uh, and he'd offered, basically, sent them a direct message offering to find you know rich white conservatives who would pay them money to continue posting or something like that. I did like the whole thing. The whole thing just seems totally strange, and like I don't know why someone would. And with, how did they get that screenshot? Well, I would thing. assume I would assume one of the administrators of the uh, of the account probably shared it with did, someone. Did you see I, this I don't story know how you would. Yeah, yeah, I would assume it's someone maybe on his team. 
that doesn't agree with that. Do you think on Schumann's team? Oh, it might have been, I mean, yeah. It's, uh, some, it's on his phone. I mean, who among us doesn't contact random Instagram accounts and offer to hook them up with wealthy It's all patrons? the time, right? Yeah. All yeah, the time. Totally. What a weird thing to do. Yeah. And, partic- and then, you know, like, particularly when it's a locked account with some pretty offensive material, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what's the next step in your head when this happens? I, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's totally weird. But I mean, he didn't win, but he's still, you know, he's still a member of the UCP. So it's something they got to, they still got to wear and got to deal with, even though he's not going to be on the ballot next year. He is not. And he did not win. And, um, yeah, you know, it's never boring. These nominations, they're finding new ways to dig up old stuff. And now on the Instagram, like I haven't been on Instagram long enough to really understand how the archiving works, but it's pretty hard to go back in time and look at someone's old posts, right? I think so. But I guess they better be looking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, scour all the social media. Kate, you live in which riding? Rutherford? Um, Edmonton White Mud. White Mud, I'm sorry. Yep. And Dr. Turner. Turner. Mm-hmm. What do you think of your local MLA? Well, yeah, he's he's great. Um, he's not as visible as I would like him to be. Um, I'd say that I'd, I'd like to see him out more. Um, oh. I've actually met the Alberta party nominee for my riding. He's already been out on the doors and it was great chatting with him. Um, do you remember the name? Um, Jonathan Dye. Yeah, he, he was the PC candidate in my riding in the last election. Oh, funny. Yeah. He's moving <laughs> really? around. Yeah. He crossed over in, in a few uh, different ways. Yeah, he was in the, the PC candidate in Highlands Norwood in, in 2015. So I think, he, I, think, I think he was parachuted into our neighborhood, I think. Right. I think. Yeah, so it'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, I've seen there's a few UCP candidates, um, including one uh, a guy who ran for city council, I believe, in our... I'm writing Payman Parsean. Right. Um, and he's a realtor, I think. Yeah. And so he's also uh, been really active. But I mean, I'd like to see Dr. Turner hold that seat. I know it's going to be tough, but he needs to get out there. Well, we have a good nomination candidate down there um, that some of us have known for a while, Elizabeth Hughes. And so I'm, I'm hoping she wins. I have nothing against uh, the other guy, but I don't really know him. So Edmonton White Mud was, uh, that was Stephen Mandel's riding before the last election, right? And there was a, there was a by-election in 2014 when, where Mandel won and Bob Turner did quite well. Mm-hmm. And then Turner defeated, uh, defeated Mandel in the last provincial election. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And now, uh, has Bob Turner said he's running again? Is he, I don't he believe he's announced. He yeah. Yeah. I think we'll see that soon. I mean, we talked about it two weeks ago. I think at some point they're all going to start announcing and then yeah. I'm, I'm sure the NDP doesn't want too many of their MLAs to go down in nomination challenges. So maybe they're working it out now or something. Yeah. And I mean, just because the, I mean, this is something that we've, we've talked about in previous podcasts, just because an MLA isn't running for, isn't hasn't officially announced their nomination. It doesn't mean that they're not doing the groundwork that they're going to need to run in the next election or need to win a nomination race. So uh, the NDP have been fairly slow off the mark compared to the UCP to, uh, to, get their MLA incumbents nominated, but they're also in kind of a bit of a different position because they are the government going in. They can, they have uh, and they are incumbent MLAs, So they have advantages already that, uh, that uh, challenging candidates don't. Um, so have there been any uh, freedom party nominations yet? The, the Derek Fildebrandt the Freedom Derek Conservative Party? Party? Yes. Uh, not that I've heard of. I mean, we, we, we actually have a question about this uh, in our mailbag, but we could just talk about it quickly right now. Um, I assume that Derek Fildebrandt is going to run in the Chestermere Strathmore riding. The one he refers to as his riding, although yeah, it's not where he lives. Yeah, well, but the riding he currently represents. So there, there's two ridings. There's Strathmore Brooks, which he represents, and then there's Chestermere Rocky View, which is 
who um, is represent, which is represented by Leela here, and the writings are being redrawn, so it's now Chestermere Strathmore. Uh, but yeah, I would assume he's running there. I haven't heard anything about any other candidates running for the Freedom Conservative Party. No. So, maybe, so maybe, maybe there'll be some mixed, uh, like Maxime Bernier, Derek Filderbrandt uh, uh, collusion going on <laughs> in terms of uh, candidates who run for Derek's party in the, in the spring, and then uh, the Maxime party in the fall. Yeah, maybe collusion's not a good word. We should avoid that one. There's well, no, yeah, no, no it's, not, it's not, not really collusion in like in like the. Uh, the non-malicious sense. So, not the uh, Russian sense. Not the Russian sense, yeah. So collusion in the, uh, it's collaboration. Right. Is that, that's even a more ch- politically charged word, but you know. Well, I mean, you you would think that a robust nomination process and having lots of people lined up to run would be a feature of this new party. Uh, so I look forward to seeing who they bring forward, but I haven't heard a thing, not a single thing. So we talk a lot about Alberta politics on this podcast. Um and uh, our listeners here obviously hear a lot from myself and a lot from Ryan. Um, so, Kate, what what's your opinion on, uh, on I mean, really on, on Alberta politics in general, but on, on, on Rachel Notley's NDP government so far in terms of, of how they're doing, um, what they've done well, what they've not done well, some of the things they, they haven't done or, or could do going into 2019? Right. So... I mean, I was still working internationally during the last provincial election, so I wasn't as involved as, as probably I could have been. Um, but since coming to work more at the University of Alberta and in Edmonton, I think I'm a lot more invested in, uh, in what happens in, in local politics, particularly in healthcare. And also, you know, I'm the mom of three kids, one with special needs. So, um, you know, I have a bigger stake in who represents me and, and my family. And... I really like Rachel Notley. I think she's done um, a fantastic job. Did she just run a marathon? She did, yeah, in, in Banff, weekend? yeah. Like, where, <laughs> I don't know. Unbelievable. I mean, that's one of the things that I really value is how visible her and members of her team are, um, you know, always just out working. And actually, um, from the outside, I'm just continually impressed by, yeah, just how often I see them. And I... Uh, earlier this week attended um, an anti-racism consultation that uh, David Shepard's office hosted. And, you know, we were there until I think 10 p.m. at night and he's just always out with his constituents working mm-hmm. so hard. He was there till the end chatting with everyone. Um, and I just think, yeah, there's a number of things to highlight that they've specifically done well. But I'd say in particular, I appreciate the support that they've given to harm reduction. I'm in public health. I'm in, you know, that area of working with, um, yeah, vulnerable Edmontonians. And I'd say that um, that's one of the biggest kind of public health and social issues of our time. It's the opioids and, and addiction crisis right now. And so the, yeah, support that they've given to um, harm reduction has been really strong. We really don't need um, more criminalization and a war on drugs in that area. So I've been impressed in that in that regard. So politically, um, I think you were maybe as surprised as everybody else when they when they wanted such a big landslide. But for people who are more prone to supporting them, which I think you are, like what do they need to continue to do? Because I I feel like, and we've talked about it on the show before, I feel like it's slipping on them. At least the narrative is. Everyone keeps saying it's slipping. And so if you're advising their campaign, and we have six, seven months left to go, what what do you do to save the government? To save the government. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, or just to save the NDP going into 2020. This, yeah. is, this, is, this, is, Ryan, this is dire. Ryan approaching from the, the perspective that the UCP is no. going to form the next majority government. Well, I'm saying if you're advising them, if she hired you today to say, you know, you're smart, what should we do? 
what would you advise them to do? Uh, just to, I guess to just to segue a little bit, I've talked about this before. Dave's talked about this. In my opinion, I think they should just let their NDP flag fly. They should make spending promises. They should focus on schools and uh, hospitals and all the tangible benefits that an NDP government is the most comfortable in promising, and not try to pre, you know, not try to be the pipeline party or the um, fiscally conservative party. But I don't advise them. So what would you do? <laughs> Right. Well, I'm definitely not a strategist and I'm, you know, much more of an outsider. And I have to say, I, I know and love very many UCP supporters. And I know that, you know, the NDP shouldn't go completely anti UCP and all of their messaging. But the fact that some people with extreme views, as you know, we just talked about previously in the nominations, they find an ideological home in the party is really problematic for me. And so anyone who supports the UCP, I think, should be worried about the number of troubling issues that have come out in these nomination races. And I think you've said, Ryan, that the vetting system is working because they're not getting on the ballot or they're not getting through. But I'm making, uh, the, I'm making the international sign for <laughs> sort of working. It's working it's, 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 they're, they're making it through the first gate. <laughs> but are these still the people that you want to be aligning with in your party? And, you know, I think that answer is no. At what point is that bargain too high? And so I think the, U the NDP needs to just continue focusing on the fact that they are the face of Alberta's future and the UCP is a step backwards. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, we've we've talked about this on 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 previous podcasts. I mean, I think the NDP are, uh, I think I think in terms of strategies going into the next election, I think highlighting these bozo eruptions, these these nomin UCP nomination candidates, is probably uh, a, a, what the NDP should be doing right now in terms of building that narrative that you know the UCP. It may have a different name, but it's still this still really is attracting all the like same Lake of Fire folks that uh, that were running in the uh, for for the Wild Rose Party a few years ago. Um, because I'm not totally sure that uh, going after, I mean, it seemed like for, it seemed for a while that the NDP were really going hard after Jason Kenney specifically. Uh, and I think that's part of the strategy, but I don't think just going after Jason Kenney is, uh, is the, is the only thing that's going to help them win the next election. I think that going, building the narrative around these UCP candidates, even if they're not successful, they're running for nominations. Um, and I mean, in, in some ways th that the NDP has been slow off the mark, um, intentionally to nominate their own candidates puts all these, all the attention on, on the UCP candidates. So the NDP are, from what I understand, thoroughly vetting their nomination candidates and they're spending the time now to thoroughly vet them. Right. Um, and they can just kind of play whack-a-mole with these UCP <laughs> nominees uh, on on a, on a like weekly basis. I mean, whoever's doing the uh, the NDP opposition research is doing a much better job than the UCP nomination committee is doing because because uh, the NDP is finding all sorts of stuff. Though I, I would comment, I think, and I'd like you guys' thoughts on this. One of the things that I've noticed from the the UCP UCP candidates who've been disqualified. And those who haven't been disqualified, and we're talking about nomination candidates, um, comment candidates, nomination candidates who've made anti-Islamic comments or Islamophobic comments or racist comments have been disqualified. Candidates who've make who basically blatantly deny climate change haven't been disqualified. Now, my theory is is that this is because there are UCP MLAs who are climate change deniers or who promote those theories. And that's why, because what, what, you can't disqualify a candidate for uh, for denying climate change if the MLAs who you've already nominated 
uh, support similar so similar views. So I don't know. What, what what do you guys think? Like, what where where's the red line here? Like, and that's the 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 challenge that I've been trying to figure out in the UCP. Like, you cross the red line if you're a racist blatantly, but but not if you deny deny well, like the the biggest challenge facing man. Like, I think there is a moral, the climate. There is a moral difference. I do believe the climate is changing clearly, but saying you don't be, like if you if you change to a similar issue, vaccinations. I think it's immoral. I think it's stupid not to vaccinate. But it's not the same as being a racist. Like there are degrees of um, some things are just objectively wrong by any definition in any in any measure. And I think racism, anti-Islamic comments. I personally would not say some of the. Um, actually, we saw a tweet today by the NDP with one of the one of the UCP candidates' history of denying climate change. I, I don't think that helps, but I do make a, a moral distinction. What do you think, Kate? I think there probably are a good number of UCP supporters that, yeah, are climate change deniers and don't, they, they associate with that view. And so it's, they're not alienating anyone. That is a popular position, unfortunately. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I can see that it's definitely disqualifying. It's not good for, you know, the public image of the party or Jason Kenney's image to be associated with racists, I guess it's. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, we we can we all agree that you know being a blatant racist is is passing the red line. But but my my problem with the climate change denial as 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 being kind of the an acceptable position is that these are people who uh, could form the next government of Alberta who are going to be legislating laws determining the policy uh, facing our province in in and and. It's even more important because we are Alberta and we are an oil, energy and oil producing province. Uh, and these are the types of issues that we can't just simply deny. I mean, I think I'd, I'd give, you know, I, I don't I don't think the NDP have gone far enough in terms of their climate, their their their, uh, their climate change initiatives. But I think they've taken huge steps in terms of where we were under the PCs for 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 44 years. Um, but. It just seems to me that if you're going to nominate candidates who have who share views of, of, of climate change denial or climate change skepticism or whatever you want to call it, uh, that's actually going to have a big impact on El- on how Alberta is perceived outside of the province. But, and when you talk about issues like pipelines, where there's actually a dispute, you know, like having a have, being opposed to pipelines outside of Alberta, being opposed to pipelines is like a mainstream idea. It's a mainstream opinion. Whereas in Alberta, it's very much, you know, you you're either you either support pipelines or you're silent basically or in and there's a small vocal minority who's opposed in, in this province but but it, it doesn't seem like that's going to help us if if we elect uh, you know a party that's associated with climate change deniers in after but 2019 I, I think you're making a political argument though absolutely it's, there is a political a di- podcast yeah there's a distinction between a political opinion and choosing your battles and choosing your platform and overt racism we even have legislation around hate hate crimes right so there is a distinction and i think that it's important to remember this is why we have politics so we what we might agree on at this table is validated or made invalid by the electorate and the choices they make so i would just you know if if you don't like the ucp for its climate ambiguity then um organize for the other side you know like that's politics but i do make a distinction between climate change skepticism and overt racism. Oh, which, yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. To be clear, I'm not. I'm not equating that they're the same. I'm just asking where the line is drawn in terms of the UCP well, vetting process. I think we've of, seen. I don't know because a lot of it's in camera. But like you started this off, the premise of we've seen the difference. So there is a line there somewhere, and uh, it's you know, 
I think too, it's case by case. It's based on how long ago they said it, how outrageous they said it. There's lots of factors. And it's something that's changing really quickly. I think this is going to be a view that is held less frequently, especially in some of the younger candidates. Hopefully this is something that you know, won't be an issue maybe in this next election, but the one following it, it won't even be a topic for discussion. And I, I find it frustrating, you know, and I get a little bit of heat for not being the like righteous conservative enough, but I find it frustrating that conservatives are debating the basic facts when the basic facts are that the climate is changing. There, there's no denying that the political argument is what do we do about it at the legislature in Edmonton? Mm-hmm. That's different, but we, we lose our focus on that and we, we fall for this trap that the left puts out, which is like, please say outrageous and uneducated things so that you all look like you just are ostriches with your head, with your head in the sand. So I, I want a, a UCP platform that is reasonable, that accepts the basic reality, but then also has a balance and says, well, okay, but Alberta emits what percentage of global CO2? Like, let's, let's think about what we do here. Um, not this like esoteric, is it all a big hoax or not? Because that's if we're talking about that stuff, we're losing. We being the UCP. So I would encourage our candidates to take a reasonable and moderate position on the very fact that the climate is statistically changing. And now let's have a productive conversation about a policy platform that responds. Well, I think it will be really good for the NDP if the election is called in the spring and it's a very cold spring because in the past week I've seen numerous posts about how there's no such thing as global warming because it snowed in September. So welcome to Alberta. (laughs) Hope for a very cold spring. So one of my long theories, Kate, is that every time Rachel Notley gets tough on Ottawa or tough on, I guess, BC, um, people like me love it. But I wonder what it does to those who are open to supporting her on the left. So can you tell me what happens to you? Like, do you like it when she puts on the Captain Alberta costume and tells Ottawa to go pound sand. Like, cause all the, we, the conservatives, we all think it's great, but for every vote she picks up, frankly, not even a vote. Cause people like me will never vote for. Her. Does she lose people on the left? What do you think? I don't think so. And I think you maybe are a different conservative that is cheering when she goes Captain Alberta, because I think that, you know, conservatives would be better off if she wasn't such a, a cheerleader and supporter of the province. Um, yeah, I think that obviously she's not going to pick up votes, but you, you're happy when you see someone standing up for Alberta. Um, even though I'm not, I don't consider myself really an Albertan more so than, uh, an Edmontonian or a Canadian or anything else. I don't, I don't get, you know, uh, political and partisan and patriotic like that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to see her standing up for Alberta and really representing our interests. So, Kate, you are an epidemiologist. Yes. A word that I have some hard difficulty with. Um, If you had a magic wand and you could design an entirely new government program or just a whole new government, what would you do in your field? Like, what, what, if you were writing the policy book, what would you advocate for? I mean, that's tough because if I had a magic wand, I probably wouldn't use it to focus government. I think a magic wand could probably be more effective than a bureaucracy. Whoa, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but if that was the only thing the wand could do, um, I mean, it would be nice if we could just get the sales tax, the provincial sales tax over and done with without having to sacrifice an election, because I think that that's going to be a necessary 
thing to to have implemented in this province if we're not going to rely on oil revenues for the rest of our existence. Um, so the magic wand would probably take care of that, and then we could fund, you know, a world-leading healthcare and education system that's publicly funded, which is something I really believe in. Don't we already spend the most per capita of any province on those two items? No, we do not. But, I think we do. <laughs> but 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 in terms of in terms of government revenue. We're still overly dependent on on oil and gas royalties, which I think is what Kate was was getting at. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree with you in terms of 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 the sales tax and in terms of I mean, not just sales tax. I mean, I think we pay we pay lower individual personal taxes, we pay lower mm-hmm. corporate taxes than a lot of other jurisdictions uh, in in Canada, uh, and that I, I, that also has to that has to be one of my biggest frustrations with this NDP government is that. It was the first time we've changed government in this province in 44 years. We had an opportunity mm-hmm. to get out of that rut, uh, and they basically didn't really even touch the royalty structure. They increased taxes a bit, and in some levels, they actually increased taxes less than what the Tories had proposed to, to increase in 2015, um, the Jim, Jim, Jim Prentice's Tories. Uh, but it's still just just not enough because you know the reason really. We, we get in this big debate in Alberta politics and you're either on the we have a revenue problem or we have a spending problem side and there doesn't seem to be much nuance for like the in-between. It's either you're mm-hmm. with like Ted Morton and the Taxpayers Federation or you're with, you know, the same people. Um, <laughs> uh, but 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 I mean, really, you know, th- there there is going to be a mix a bit a, a bit. Yeah, we can spend probably spend a little more efficiently and a little better in 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 some areas. I mean, there's been arguments and, and a lot of public debate recently about whether we need to two separate publicly funded education systems in this mm-hmm. province. Do we need a separate Catholic board and a separate public board? Um, what kind of efficiencies could be, uh, could be found by amalgamating the types of the, you know, the services that those boards provide. Um, but really when it comes down to it, it's like we just, we're, we're, we're undertaxed in this province. Uh, I don't know. Ryan's giving me a smirk right now, uh, but 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 it is so true. Is I, that is I for one am not undertaxed. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, that's because that's you live in St. Albert. That's a <laughs> <laughs> well, we've said it before. If 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 there is a desire to bring in a provincial sales tax, then I welcome whatever combination of parties on the left to campaign on it. I think the Alberta Party will. We still haven't actually. We've been predicting that for months. Yeah. I I think there's something to the fact that Rachel Notley won't touch the sales tax with the ten foot pole. And I guess you could say that's a frustrating bug, but I actually think it's a feature. I think Albertans don't want a sales tax. So the only way that I personally would um, consider a sales tax, of course, would be for like a significant reduction in the income tax or property taxes or something. But then you're talking about changing a lot of things. And so we'll see. I I still think my longstanding theory that the next NDP leader is going to bring them back to their roots and they're going to campaign on Maybe that. Um, who knows? But we will see. Well, I know this is something that a lot of uh, a lot of NDP NDP affiliated groups were pushing the NDP to uh, to talk about in 2015, and and have been pushing the NDP to talk about to uh, no seeming avail uh, for the 2019 election. I mean, I agree. I don't think that the NDP are going to run on a uh, introduce the GST in 2019. That'd be uh, <laughs> that under the current political climate. That'd be uh, well, under the political climate. It'd be very challenging even though it might be the right thing to do i think mr kenny would have a fun time campaigning against that yes that's why we need the wand <laughs> yeah the, ma- the, magic the magic wand, wand. now what about in public health um our healthcare system has some challenges it has some features that are good you uh you guys had your kids overseas so you've seen different systems what do we need to do 
looking at the boomer bubble that's coming, looking at all these factors, what would you do there? Yeah, I mean, I I have little to complain about in terms of healthcare for myself and my family. I mean, we are just very well taken care of. We use the health system a lot. And so I feel like I know, um, yeah, the ins and outs, and I'm just really happy with the care. I think there is a segment of the population though that is not receiving the same care um, that is is deserved. And so that's where I'm focusing my efforts. It's really making sure that, you know, we have increasing chronic disease rates and just a lot of long-term care, like you said, with the kind of aging boomer generation. And um, it's going to, yeah, it comes with healthcare stress and healthcare costs. But I think we have the right system. We need to just keep working and improving it. I definitely don't recommend moving to more privatization. Obviously, there's more efficiencies that we can get and um, things that can change in terms of management and and to be more cost effective. But um, I like the way things are going. I just think actually we need more equitable care so that we're reaching everyone with really high quality healthcare services. So who are we not reaching? Um, I think we have a huge gap in newcomer populations. There's, um, yeah, a, a lot of primary care needs aren't being met. In addition to, like I said, with um, chronic disease, diabetes, you know, even getting cancer diagnoses as early in, in the population as we need to, um, as well with, you know, both uh, Indigenous people living in the city now and and needing to come in to urban areas to receive health care. The amount of, of stress that kind of medical travel causes when you need to leave home to come to get care from, I mean, that rural and remote communities is huge. And so getting our family doctors and nurse practitioners and health care providers, I mean, it's not sexy stuff. This isn't super fun and interesting, but the kind of daily grind of making sure that the healthcare system's working for everyone is something I like to do. So you talked about the challenges um, uh, facing in primary health care for new Canadians, for um, Indigenous Canadians. Um, what, what would you, if you had, if you could talk to Health Minister Sarah Hoffman today, uh, what would you, what would, the, would be the kind of things that you'd recommend and to, that could help improve healthcare access and services for these these uh, these populations? Well, I'd I'd ask her to make sure that she keeps her seat and her job and <laughs> that we don't have to move over to a government that wants more privatization and a completely different structure of the healthcare system. I, I don't know if the UCP would change the structure. I mean, they've, they, it was the PCs that went from however many boards down to a smaller amount of boards down to AHS. I think maybe there's a hope to leave that side of it alone, but I think on delivery, certainly there is a, um, there's an, an atmosphere, or sorry, there's a, appetite for exploring some delivery options but what you're talking about i really am troubled by remote community access to healthcare. i don't know what to do there because if you talk to the faculty of medicine if you talk to any other group it's really hard just to get family doctors trained Mm -hmm. and certainly to find ones who are prepared to go live in fort simpson or you know, small places. I guess Fort Simpson's not in Alberta, but I'm trying to like think. Fort Vermilion or yeah. those areas. And yeah, we, and we, we also Fort see similar Simpson. challenges with with attracting nurses to work in those communities. Or well. teachers, mm-hmm. yeah, or teachers, mm-hmm. yeah. At least physicians can go up there and make a lot of money. I mean, if you're a if you're an, uh, an elementary teacher, I don't know what the solution is. Like, there has to be some sort of combination of incentive and finding people who have a passion for their community already. Mm-hmm. Um, in your field, so I think you work mostly with indigenous communities. Is that true? Um, it's a variety. I mean, the, we work a lot in the north and northwest territories. So with, um, yeah, a lot of rural and remote communities across, um, yeah, the provinces and territories. But I think we're 
it's a space where you can see a lot of innovation and there's a lot more telehealth and right. um, kind of like, yeah, connections now with speaking to, you know, it doesn't even have to be a, a physician in your time zone and you can do a lot more, I think, remotely. It doesn't ever replace having that on-site care, but yeah, training community-based providers and getting someone who's already passionate about community work right. to stay because you need the people there long-term to really make a difference. So then maybe the solution begins, and I know there's not a solution, but maybe it be- begins with education when people in those communities are still there in junior high and in high school and supporting academic success. And then I know at the university, there's just a ton of resources to come and study. Um, but there's something there. There's a gap. There's, there's a barrier there that I don't quite understand because if you were looking for student support and you're from a Northern community, you could find it. So what, where does it break down? And then how do we send doctors and nurses and teachers back up to their own communities and provide an incentive for them to stay and do we even, can we? Like, is it even something governments can solve? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's, uh, you know, you can't incentivize this kind of work because you don't actually want it to be a fully, you know, profit-based model that someone's only going in for the money. It, it, it is really, you know, uh, a, a lot of prevention and making sure that we have the, you know, healthy behaviors and, and lifestyle going into, um, you know, school and and pregnancy and childbirth and into old age like it's a continuum throughout the your life cycle that you need to just yeah i don't know <laughs> so this is when when we talk about the social determinants of health this exactly. is the kind of thing like it's a a holistic approach yeah yeah well and i think from like a conservative perspective would also include the fact that we need to support families of whatever that family is defined however is defined but find ways to make life um, not just about survival, you know, so that you can keep um, generations of families together. You can keep kids with their role models to see their grandparents and to have like a whole network of, and so this is something that like Leanne and I have given some thought to, and I'm not sure yet what the solution is, but I don't say we need to support families in the sense of like (laughs) focus on the family means it, but I mean, whatever the family unit is, that if people can at least feel like there's resources from them for all sorts of things, you know, maybe it's community rec centers and maybe not to be simplistic, but the whole range, physical activity. I wonder about mental health in Northern communities. Is it disproportionately higher, a a higher issue than it is here? And then I was going to ask you another question. Sorry. Do you see the same pattern, whether you're talking about indigenous and newcomers in Edmonton or in the big centers, roughly the same pattern as with Northern communities or is it totally different challenges? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm based in the city. I live in the city. I think it's hard for me to to speak to you know the r- rural communities. But yeah, I, I do think that there are different challenges you know in remote centers. But I, I wouldn't ever say that you know life is is too tough up there. People living you know in those communities love it and they want to stay there they just you know want the health system to work for them and the you know school system in the same way that it does for for folks who are in the city and I think yeah you're talking about family support we need to have that same family support um, for folks in the city here I think it's actually harder to stay as a, a family unit when you're dealing with a lot of the urban pressures that we have here and as a newcomer family I mean we lived overseas without that family support and it's been one of the reasons that we have relocated to Edmonton and stay because we have that 
broader, you know, extended family that can can help us out and, and be there for us. The Dayberta Podcast is brought to you by ATB Prosper. Whether you're saving for retirement, a major purchase, your child's education, or a rainy day, ATB Prosper helps you create a personalized investment plan to assist you in reaching your financial goals. It's easy to create, manage, and follow your progress through your customized digital dashboard. Start investing with as little as $100 and make additional contributions of as little as $25. Find out more at atbprosper.com. The Dave Burdick Podcast is also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And one of the uh, members, I suppose, of the Alberta Podcast Network uh, family of shows includes a new one from a place that I happen to work called ATB Financial. And this is a full disclosure one that I have produced. What you're going to want to do is point your podcatcher to We Are Alberta by ATB Financial. Alberta is filled with history from its people to its landmarks. There are stories that help bring this province to life from an economic point of view. On We Are Alberta, economist Nick Ford is hitting the road to find what makes Alberta so Alberta. You can listen and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere. Pods are generally cast. We're going to open up the mailbag now and uh, answer some of the questions that our uh, great listeners have sent us. So thanks to everyone who's sent, uh, sent us a question this, for this episode. Starting off, Scott Penny asks us, curious about your take on the proposed Northlands redevelopment options and Calgary 2026. Thoughts? Now, I think he's specifically talking about Northlands, the Exposition Lands in Edmonton, and the Calgary Olympic bid in 2026, which we talked a little bit about in the last episode. Um, so can I throw it out there, guys? Do you have any thoughts on, on the new uh, proposals for Northlands or the future of Northlands or uh, the Calgary Olympics? Pick one. <laughs> Well, Dave, you live up near Northland, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. On, on the Calgary Olympics, um, we talked about last time. I mean, I like the Olympics. I think it'd be great. I'm a little bit leery of the IOC. Kate, what do you think? Um, I mean, I love Olympics, too. I love big sporting events. Uh, we were in South Africa for the 2010 World Cup, and that oh, was a ton of fun. Cool. With the, with the trumpet. With the Vuvuzelas. Yes. Yeah. I had the app, the Vuvuzela app on my phone. <laughs> But I, I mean, can hear I'm, it in my head now. Yeah, yeah. I'm always wary of you know big sporting events and and kind of the negative impacts on health um, that these can sometimes bring and and often in cities the kind of marginalization of um, you know the homeless population and and others. So I'm warily excited, if that's fair. Uh, yeah, I feel the the same way about the Olympics. I think I, I elaborated a little bit more in the last episode. Uh, so you can check the last episode out. Basically, uh, I, I, you know, I, I like the games. I like the World Cup. I like the Olympics, but I just, I'm not a fan of the IOC, not a fan of FIFA and the way they operate and their, their money-driven machine. Um, in terms of the Northlands redevelopment, I live like a stone's throw away uh, from the uh, from Northlands and from the, uh, the former Northlands Coliseum where the Oilers played for 20-some years. Um, so I, I, you know, I... F- I have a lot of thoughts on it because it's going to be literally almost right next door, a couple blocks away. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to redevelop, uh, redevelop the, uh, the Northland site, whether it's uh, partly expanding Borden park, which the city has done a fantastic job in terms of redeveloping. It's a beautiful park. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room, uh, especially if, the, if they're going to tear down the old horse race track uh, to exp- expand Borden park to the North. I think there's a, a real opportunity to um, incorporate um, uh, 
some features into the park, whether it be a, you know an, a, a center for indigenous people or some kind of reconciliation um, uh, monument or so, something having to do with 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 reconciliation, uh, especially in in that part of the city where there are a lot of First Nations people who live. Uh, live in that area of the city, I think that'd be totally appropriate and, and a really neat opportunity. Um, there's opportunity to uh, zone some housing, for example. You could put housing and some commercial space. Uh, it's interesting, actually, part of the, part of the, if you're familiar with the Northlands space, the, um, the parking lot that runs uh, just west of Wayne Gretzky uh, where basically where K Days is held, mm-hmm. that was actually residential up until most of it was residential up until like the early two thousands. That was that was Bellevue proper. So there used to be houses there, and then the city bought them, and Northlands bought them, and they basically ran them as slum landlords until they could knock them down and then build a parking lot. So I think there's a real opportunity to redevelop that space, especially with Concordia University of Edmonton just south of there, and Concordia looking to expand. Uh, so I'm actually quite excited. Uh, I really hope that the city takes it seriously. And uh, I mean, I, I went to a uh, consultation meeting with the, with the city of Edmonton last week, and they have some pretty neat ideas in terms of, of what they can do with that space. And out of the four kind of main proposals they were talking about, there was nothing that really like raised a massive red flag in my head. They all seemed like varying degrees of okay ideas. Some of them would be great. Some of them would just be okay, but nothing that I would seem would be awful as long as it actually st- moves forward and starts to get done. But Definitely expanding Borden Park and uh, and uh, redeveloping the 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 Coliseum LRT station as well because I think there's some significant safety issues around the current design, which is I think the original 1978 design. Um, one of the things that I can't help but think of is in the 2013 campaign, the big debate about the airport yeah. and the grand utopian vision that that was supposed to be. And right now, every time I drive by it, it looks pretty far away from that. So I'm concerned that the city sometimes takes on really big projects and really oversells and really, really under delivers. And so I'm with you on this one. It's an exciting opportunity. But I just, you know, I I don't have a lot of confidence that it'll get done and or at least in my lifetime. It feels maybe this is unfair, (laughs) but it feels like the city really oversells projects and under delivers. So I guess we'll all watch that. But I mean, that piece of land, Northland's entire property is a huge footprint, right? Right in the middle of, um, right in the middle of the city mm-hmm. with a couple major freeways and roads accessing it. So it's important. Mm-hmm. And surrounded by residential neighborhoods. Yeah. And I think the rest of the city forgets that because we commute there for Euler games and then we leave, but there's people who live there. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, my first job was at Klondike Days in the gold panning exhibit. Oh, cool. Northlands. With like the little tray. <laughs> and the, the little tray. Oh, so cool. Would have been nice to preserve that. What's your first job, Dave? My first job. I deli- well, like, like, I delivered flyers for a real estate agent when I lived in Morinville. That was uh, that was a job I did. I uh, what's the first job they took EI and CPP deductions oh, for? Yeah, uh, you know I worked at. I'm trying to think. I'm hoping I can get this right. I worked at Blockbuster Video. Wow, wow you are a relic. Yeah, yeah, I I, I did. Be telling Ben about that. I uh, yeah, I, an actual an actual video store, and I worked at uh, IGA. I made pizzas at IGA. Those were some of my first jobs. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of yeah, like actual like legitimate like PDI and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. How about you, Ryan? Well, I was a burger slinger at Wendy's through most of high school. Yeah. In fact, Kate's husband and I would hang out after my shift all the time. So I think they came through the drive-thru once when I was working and they like reversed through the drive-thru or something silly like that. 
Yeah, uh, Wendy's for almost two years, and then I quit at the end of grade twelve because I had to focus on my exams. So. Oh yeah, I think teaching people to pan for gold beats both of those. That's totally yeah. that's totally great. You know, I, I did work I did work in construction for a while. Actually, actually, I think that's that's before the two jobs I just mentioned. I worked. Uh, my dad has a construction company, so I worked for his uh, his construction company for the summers. The summers I was in high school, and yeah. one summer I went and spent the summer working in White Court building a. If you, if anybody out there is familiar with the hotel that's across the street from the Ernios, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I was on the crew that uh, that built that hotel in in White nice. Court, and I have to say, White Court in the summer it was hot yeah. and sandy, and there were bugs everywhere. Yeah. And uh, so your dad didn't give you like a cushy job. No, no, no. Office. He actually, I think he actually had a chance, an opportunity to send me to Jasper. I think he had another crew that was like in Jasper, but uh, but he figured I'd probably spend all my money in Jasper, which was probably a you know, the right thing to do. So I saved my money and I went to Europe. So that was a good choice. Uh, we have a question here from Jeff Samsonow, uh, who wants us to talk about Jason Kenny's trip to India and, uh, and how it's being framed and, and some of the rhetoric that he's, he's been using during this trip. Well, so in d- I think I'll jump in here and defend Jason Kenny because <laughs> I suspect the two of you won't. Um, Kenny and the other MLAs have made a very distinct point of not criticizing the NDP government while they're there. He gave a heads up to the government that he's going. The thing that his opponents don't fully credit is that Jason Kenney actually really does have contacts with the Indian government up and down. Um, He was there so many times as a federal minister that they know him. I don't think he's there undermining the government. I think he's there spreading the message, visiting the oil refinery, um, visiting some other sites. You know, the, I think this is, mostly positive the i saw a briefing paper from the alberta government describing just how vital india is to alberta's trade relationship and i think that's part of why they brought their trade critic devon dreeson because we are a huge customer of theirs and they're a huge customer of ours so bring it on guys let's hear the criticisms now um well i mean for my part all i saw was a tweet from jason kenny that said he was going to mumbai aka bombay which i just thought that if someone from India was coming to Toronto and said, I'm going to Toronto, AKA Upper Canada. It's not really something that we would think is appropriate. So I just think that Jason Kenney needs to to get with the times and um, yeah, use, use proper names. But I mean, I think again, from an outsider, um, there was so much criticism of, of Justin Trudeau's trip to India and the, the photo ops coming out um, of, of Jason Kenney's trip are similar. And I just think there's again, a lot of hypocrisy in how these are being presented. Yeah, and in terms of of the some of the media interviews Jason Kenney has done in in India, I mean, I, I wrote the, wrote about this on my blog about how Jason Kenney was touting the uh, NDP's uh, record of low taxes and efficient power power prices. I think he and, was touting uh, the long term and, and high educate and, and a highly educated workforce or or a, or a or a good edu- good good education system. Uh, so I mean, this is this is this is a case a bit of of Kenney saying one thing when he's overseas and saying and, and rallying against another thing when he's here in Alberta. I mean, constantly over the past, uh, the past Jason three Kenny years. So no, no, seriously. <laughs> but over the past two years, Jason Kenney's key messages have been uh, the NDP have destroyed the Alberta advantage by increasing taxes. Uh, another key point has been that power prices are going to increase. And this is all because of the bad things the NDP is, has doing. And then, you know, just the, you know, as we've seen just this recent week, he can't, help himself the you know the ucp can't help themselves but attack teachers attacking the alberta teachers association um well this, the ata is picking a fight you don't have support berman come and speak and not expect it to be a political issue i mean they weren't bringing in some gentle moderate person they're being provocative too and we've talked about this before i actually wish that 
Well, I, no, I do want the UCP to distinguish between the political ATA and the teachers who live next door to us. But that move right there was the political ATA at its best. I think that fight helps them both. I think they both love it. Jason, though, I, you know, I guess your criticism is that he's being supportive of the Alberta government while overseas. Is that what it boils down to? If you think about the Golden Temple photo, when Trudeau did it, his wife had a ridiculous pose. Trudeau had this smug look on his face. They were all wearing the full... And again, if they were wearing the traditional clothing at that photo op, that would have been fine. But it was like the eighth or ninth time in a row that they were wearing it. This is all just like like recycled conservative talking points, trying to convince Canadians that that Jason that, that Justin Trudeau's trip was a failure. I mean, I don't. I mean, I kind of only barely paid attention to Justin Trudeau's trip right. to India, but like ninety percent of what I've heard about it are conservatives talking about what a failure it was, the summer of failure, yeah. the summer of failure. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that most Canadians were really paying attention to it, and they're probably just all they know about it is is the conservative talking point. Um, so I, I like it when governments go overseas and do the work of engagement and making the case and presenting our government. I'm fine with that. But I think what we've just demonstrated is that certain politicians are triggers, like a red flag and a bull. And the way that we see it is depends so much on our starting point. Because when I think of Trudeau and those quote unquote costumes, it makes me crazy. Or Minister Freeland this week. She's arriving to deal with NAFTA, a trillion dollar US per year trilateral trade deal. And she's focusing on cheeky t shirts and being cute. Her kids made. Her kids made. Yeah, her and, kids and she's made. dealing with serious people like Jared Kushner and Donald no, no. Trump. And like, I, you know, you a t shirt is like the least of our worries. But you, like, both, you both know no one hates Trump more on the conservative than me. But I'm just saying, right now, right now is now the time. Because Trump watches this stuff. We saw he basically tore up um, what was the deal at the G at the G seven because of a press conference. Like he Trump is provocable. And you have Minister Free like just take it seriously. One of the criticisms that people like me made was that this was a profoundly unserious candidate for leader, Justin Trudeau. And when I see that stuff, like you can have fun. I'm all for it. I'm not saying we all have to be stuffy. But that is not the right time. This is a trillion dollar trade deal. There's nothing more important. And I know her kids made it, but does it help? Did that advance Canada's cause? Was that the time, Minister Freeland? No. But I guess the point is, like, when I see the Trudeau government doing things like that, it makes me crazy. When you guys, not you guys, when people on the left see Jason Kenney overseas. Using colonial terms for cities. Makes you crazy. Right. So what do the normal people think? Kate, you're supposed to be the normal people here. <laughs> well, I'm not insider baseball like you guys. So our next question, and actually there was a follow-up that we will read out as well. Uh, we got one from Brett Lambert. Do you think the Alberta government's anti-racism advisory council will be effective in combating racism? And someone replied to him saying, I personally appreciate and welcome the intent first, but what's more important is the fact whether it will correctly portray the actual demographics and faces of modern-day Alberta or will be eyewash policies be an eyewash policy step? What do you guys think? Will this advisory council be effective? Well, from what I understand, the the, the council hasn't act. They haven't actually announced the council members yet. Um, I was looking looking at this online the other day. So they've they've announced the creation of this council, but they were still, I think they just closed recently closed um, applications for applications to join the panel. So they haven't actually or the council. So they haven't actually announced. Um, so, I mean, as, as for the follow-up question, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you would hope that a committee like this would, would accurately portray, 
you know, the, the, the re, kind of the real face of Alberta. Um, but I guess we'll have to see in terms of, of what, uh, who's appointed and, and what, what kind of people join the, the council and, uh, and what they can accomplish. Yeah, I think I'd heard that they had over 300 applications wow. for it. So uh, it's not like there's not a demand for this mm-hmm. kind of thing happening. I think it's, you know, it's ambitious um, to say whether it's going to be effective in combating racism. I mean, that's more than any 13 members or whatever of a board can do. But yeah, it's a great, it's a great step, I think. Yeah. Okay, our next question from Stevie Mac, I see. Um, at Nin- referring to at Nenshi doesn't seem as omnipresent on mainstream or social media ever since the municipal election. Even though he won, do you think the prospect that he could have lost actually humbled him a little? I'm going to jump in and say I don't think anything on earth will humble <laughs> Nahid Nenshi even a little. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, he didn't. I don't think he actually almost. I mean, okay, he said the, the question was even though he won. Well, well, he didn't almost lose. Uh, the I mean there were the polls we t- we think we talked about this in the previous episode and, and Calgarians might will know a lot about this going into the, from last year's mayoral election there were a bunch of polls from from a certain polling company that I will not mention because they're extremely lit- litigious um, uh, that uh, we have insurance for that on the show don't we <laughs> well I'll talk to Adam about that later uh, uh, the polls said one thing post media grabbed the poll those polls that I think that I, they they partially paid for they paid for and they ran with it and they were basically based almost all their news coverage columns news reports on these polls that turned out to be not anything close to what actually happened on election day and there were pollsters during the campaign and after the campaign from other companies and other uh, political political analysts who were raising red flags and concerns about these polls and the results they were receiving talking about how they may have been outliers and and it turns out that the the narrative that that post media tried to create by using these polls, whether intentionally or not, um, uh, ended up not being the reality of what actually happened on election day. Kate, do you follow Calgary politics enough to have an opinion on this? I mean, I don't, but I have myself backed away a little bit from social media. I wonder if maybe he's just tired of Twitter. That's totally fair. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he is the, if you think of an example for all of us, when we all became of tw- became aware of Twitter as a political tool, that was the campaign. In fact, I think I heard about him first from Dave. We were on one of our shows, and he said, you know, I, I don't have a vote in Calgary, but if I did, I'd vote for this Nahid Nenshi guy. And I was like, I yeah. don't know who that is. Was but this, this was back when we were doing our Google Hangouts during the yeah. municipal election campaigns, yeah. We have another question from Stevie Mac, I see. Uh, you seem pretty informed on all things Fildebrandt. Since I wasn't able to get an answer from the man himself, I'm wondering if... One of you might know why he was so determined to take that specific riding, Chestermere, Strathmore, or Strathmere, Chestermere. I think it's a fairly straightforward answer. I think it's the one that's the closest to his current riding, right? It's changing a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's his current riding is is Strathmore Brooks, and it's uh, Strathmore Brooks is gone in the next election. It's being split between this this new riding, Chestermere, Strathmore, and Brooks Medicine Hat. And uh, Brooks Medicine Hat might have been a little too far. Uh, from his base to run, and uh, so he's, he decided to run. Obviously, decided to run in Chestermere Strathmore. You know, we go back to one of the reasons why. You know, one of the many reasons uh, he was, uh, it, you know, not welcome to rejoin the UCP is that he was so adamant to challenge Leela here. And uh, after uh, the mountain of, of scandals that he had uh, he had built and put in his resume over the past few years the UCP were not uh, not incredibly enthusiastic to have him uh, have him running up for their party in, the, in this particular riding again 
Next question from Mountain Ted. Thanks again for the question, Ted. In light of recent events in Ottawa, why do reps cross the floor? The Wild Rose defectors all got voted out. Has anyone ever profited from crossing the floor? Kate, do you have any thoughts on floor crossers? Does it bother you? I mean, you don't, you're not quite the nerd that we are when it comes to day-to-day political maneuvering. So when, when a rep crosses the floor, does it mean anything to you or is it just purely case by case? No, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't get as upset, although I do get upset at the hypocrisy of folks who don't like it when people cross the floor from their party to another party, but are fine welcoming in defectors. So no, I, I see it as a, a valuable part of the system. And for someone who's just an outsider, it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, it's, it's dramatic. Right. Like, it's awesome. I was texting Dave and Adam when when the liberal crossed the floor in Ottawa. And um, I was like, that was awesome. Not Nothing to do with her or any of that. Just as pure theater. Mm-hmm. It was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if any of us will ever experience the theater of an opposition leader and her 80% of her caucus all walking across the floor at once. Like that, like that I feel like, is a lifetime event. Mm-hmm. But to your point, the Wild Rose defectors did all lose, either in their nominations or in their general. Um, I think we've talked about this before. I'm actually kind of a Westminster purist. Like, I like it. I think it's a feature. I think that we should get back to this idea that representatives are, they have some agency and that it means something. And that if party leaders aren't doing what they should be doing, they could lose MPs. I think that's a, it would be a healthy thing. Um so yeah, like like you, Kate, I, I find it irritating when people only cheer for it one way or the other. Of course, the one that happened, what was her name? I'm sorry. Uh, Leona. Leona Alislav. So like I loved everything about it, of course. And I readily admit I liked it because she was joining my guys. And I also liked it <laughs> just for the pure theater of standing up on a, you know, a procedural. What was it? A point of order? I think it was a point of order. Yeah. For, for the, li- the listeners who, who missed it, she this, we're talking about the, the liberal MP who last week physically stood up and, and, and on a point of personal privilege, point of, point of privilege, and, and made a statement. And then <laughs> as she was making the statement, it was clear that something was happening. And then by the end of the statement, she was basically announced that she joined the Conservative caucus. And then yeah. she physically crossed the floor of the House of Commons yeah. over to the Conservatives who had all of a sudden all right. appeared. While they were she cheering her and shaking her hand. Yeah. And so, so there definitely was like a theatrical element of this, which, which I do find kind of funny that... I mean, this is this is the Conservative Party that constantly attacks Justin Trudeau for being nothing more than a drama teacher. Well, uh, hey, and hey, here you go. They, they, they just, you know, created this theatrical production and, and put it on in front of Canadians. And, well, and my favorite was her liberal colleague behind her. Yes. We have to find out who this guy oh was. Oh, my gosh. He must have noticed. Okay, why is Andrew Shearer in his seat? Uh-oh, why is the whole Conservative caucus in there? But if you watch his face, like he's trying so hard not to react. I would have just <laughs> left my seat if I yeah. was him. The memes kind of wrote themselves on that one, though. The poor guy, because I, I truly think he had no idea. He probably was only half listening to it. Yeah. And then he was like, what? Is, what? What did she just say? Uh-oh, what's going on? And then she leaves. Also, uh, a funny little thing, just the logistics of it. Like, did she clean out her desk prior to that? Did she hang up her coat on the government side? Because um, I know there are actually two lobbies. Like, yeah. When you're going in, you pick your side. That'd be a pretty awkward... Uh, Can someone run over and grab my coat? Yeah, I don't think you'd be that welcome to go back and collect your stuff yourself. After I'm sure they, I'm sure they would, uh, if there was anything left in on on, on that side, that, uh, that the, the, li- the, the liberals would have uh, had someone 
drop them off at the conservative office. Well, when the wild rosers crossed, I know, I personally know several staffers who had to go in and clean out their MLA's offices and then were let go after like it. Yeah. The, the problem with this stuff is it's always human beings involved. So sure. It's great theater when you're tuning into CBC Newsworld, but there are people who will be very upset. I actually heard Rathgaber, Brent Rathgaber on the radio mm-hmm. on the house uh, Friday or Thursday talking about it. And that's what he said too, that he knew the moment he, left the conservative caucus, he might have doomed his career, but he felt like it was a principal mm-hmm. thing to do. But he spoke of the social cost to the MP, that all of a sudden all the friends they had in Ottawa were on the other side. and mm-hmm. yeah. They weren't really your friends anymore? No, it makes it or a little to, awkward. To begin with? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I remember the day that uh, that the Wild Rose, basically the, you know, most of the Wild, I think all but four or five of the Wild Rose caucus crossed Drew over. Drew Barnes, Rick Strankman. Uh, I think that's had, it. Stayed? Stayed. No, no. Uh, and are still there. Oh, who stayed and are still there. Heather Forsyth. And um, uh, Livingstone McLeod. Pat Steer was Pat there. Steer. Pat Steer. And then Shane Saskey was the other one. He, he didn't run for re-election. Yeah. Um, I remember the day that it happened. They had the, When they had the press conference, I was there at the press conference when Daniel Smith and Jim Prentice walked down the stairs from uh, yeah. down to the press conference. And it was a very... It was fascinating and very dramatic. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know basically blowing up Alberta politics as we, as we knew it. And what would be the equivalent? Like Sarah Hoffman? No, hold on. It was opposition crossing. Yeah. So it'd be like if most of the UCP went over and joined the NDP yeah. government. Yeah. Like on, on mass. Now we did have, uh, like this to the second part of mountain or mountain Ted's question. Uh, has anyone ever profited from the floor crossing the floor? And I assume what you mean by profited is have their political careers had succeeded after that. Now we, we saw all the wild rosers floor all the wild rose floor crossers go down to defeat uh, in 2015. But it's in previous elections we've seen some some MLAs who've crossed the floor from the opposition to the government actually do quite well. Um, Stan Walashin is one that I think of off the top of my head who crossed. He was a New Democrat from Stony Plain who crossed the floor in 1992. And he was reelected as a Tory for like the next three or four elections. Actually became a cabinet minister in Klein's government. Wow. Um, uh, Jeans Wazdeski is right. another one. He He's was elected one. twice as a liberal from mm-hmm. Edmonton Mill Creek and crossed the floor to the Tory. I think he sat as an independent first and then crossed the floor to the Tories. And then he was a Tory M- MLA for the next three or four terms, became a cabinet minister, was minister of health, yeah. uh, later became speaker of the house. So, I mean, out of all the examples I think of, he's his is kind of like probably the most in terms of political if you could talk about profit as political or political success as right. profit his is probably the best example is that he actually went so. and he wasn't just a footnote no he actually like huge roles in the government yeah he'll have a picture in the legislature as speaker of the house yeah. right the other one that jumps out to me is david kilgore um, yeah left the pcs yeah. joined the liberals did he sit as an independent for any amount of time i don't remember i don't remember whether whether and yeah and yeah david kilgore was a conservative mp progressive conservative mp for edmonton strathcona and then edmonton mill woods well, or edmonton south east uh and then he left the pcs in the early 90s or oh, i think i think it was over the gst issue uh and then joined the liberals and then was re-elected as a liberal uh for enough for, i think from 93 until 2006 so he actually had quite, and then by the end of his term as a liberal, he'd left and sat as an independent and then resigned or retired as an independent. So what's the Churchill quote? It, it, anyone can rat, but it takes a certain ingenious to re-rat or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, cause Church, Churchill had, had, what he had started as a conservative and then crossed the floor to the liberals and then crossed the floor back to the, 
back to the conservatives. Now, so from from what it, I, from what I understand, the the first time he crossed the floor was actually like on a on an actual like philosophical issue. I think it was had something to do with trade tariffs. And then when the second time when he left the liberals to go back to the conservatives is because the liberals were in total collapse. Was it the Lib Dems then? Not yet. I don't think so. I think they were just still the Liberal Party. I thought I'd catch you on something, but it's hard to <laughs> trick Dave. But yeah, I don't. Ha- I don't have a problem. Really, have a problem with floor, clo- floor crossers. Go- going back to to Kate's comment, I think it's it is always kind of uh, amusing and eye rolling to watch uh, politicos of, of of one side denounce uh, an, uh, a politician and call for a by election when uh, when they cross the floor to the other side, but then you know rejoice when uh, when an M- MP or MLA joins them from the other side. So I, I think about like even a few years ago here in Alberta the total like outrage among conservatives when Sandra Jansen joined the NDP uh, and then yet total like crickets when this, uh, this liberal MP joins the, uh, joins the conservatives. To be fair, her joining the NDP was probably the least uh, anger inducing thing about her. Cause it was like, yeah, well obviously you're an NDP. I, like, I think they were mad at Sandra Jansen in general. I don't think the fact that she joined their caucus was the thing that, like that's like a pretty minor point in the overall story. You think so? I think it's actually a pretty major point for me, anyway. Okay. Mostly, she picked on electricians for me. Well, but. yeah, no, I, I know you have, you have opinions about Sandra Jansen that predated uh, <laughs> predated the NDP government. The other interesting uh, thing here is, of course, there already was a nominated CPC candidate in. I'm sorry, we should have the writing in front of us. It's Aurora Oak Ridge something something. And he was the former MP. So it's interesting thinking about the management of candidates there. And, you know, like, it's true that we sort of have a Westminster system, but we also don't have a pure, there's not, there's other aspects than just the caucus here. You have a candidate in place. So, and people work pretty hard to either elect their candidate or unelect the other guy. And it's hard not to have, like, you know, when you're that involved, it'd be hard not to have hard, hard feelings over this. But yeah, I'm all for four crossing. We need more of it. It gives us something to talk about. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. The show is made possible in part by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Check out other great Alberta-made pod at albertapodcastnetwork.ca. Send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.